Fanshawe College. This is Ilhan, and I'm the multimedia reporter for Interrobang. Welcome to the podcast. Sex, some people's favorite topic, some people's least. Whether it be in a group chat, a Friday night out with friends, or a locker room, sex is always a topic of conversation in one way or another. It's a part of our relationships, our music, our media, our jokes, and our culture. It's how we even came to be. Sex is everywhere, and so is the violence surrounding it. At a time where talks about dismantling and rebuilding broken systems meant to help and protect us, our understanding and education of sexual violence needs to change. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Leah Marshall, Fanshawe's sexual prevention advisor. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for joining with me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to get people to understand what exactly you do. Start off, for those that don't know what a sexual violence prevention advisor does, what is your job exactly? So my job is to support students that have experienced any type of gender-based violence, um, either before they've come to Fanshawe or when they're students with us. So gender-based violence and sexual violence are, are broad terms that encompass many different acts. So not all the violence is physical. Sometimes people um, immediately have a thought that when we say the term sexual violence, that it must be um, something that's been done to someone in a physical manner. And so I think before we even get into the topic of um, what supports and services we provide, it's really important for students to know what is sexual violence and what is gender-based violence. So it's any type of violence, either physical, psychological, or emotional, targeted at someone because of their gender or sexuality. So it can include things that take place online, comments, memes. Um, it can be things such as homophobia and transphobia, um, catcalling. There's a range of things. Um, we definitely can't get into every piece of that, but I would encourage students to know that the, the violence doesn't have to be physical um, for you to be able to receive support. Uh, and what the support looks like. So um, pre-COVID, I lived in the Counseling and Accessibility Services office. Now I work from home. And so students connect with me via email to set up an appointment. Um, they can either contact me directly or sometimes they are connected through a prof or someone else that they um, have trusted to, to talk about what's happened. Um, my job is not necessarily to hear from the student exactly what they were subjected to. Um, I'm obviously always happy to hold space for students, but survivors are required in our society to share their stories sometimes multiple times. And it's really um, a, a choice about who we share that information with. So sexual violence is not about sex, it's about power and control. And survivors um, need to be able to have the control moving forward about what their healing path looks like. And that includes who they have to give information about what happened to them. So I can meet with students and hold space for their experience or can just review the services that we provide. Um, and so those services look like academic accommodations. So when these instances of violence happen when we're in the middle of school, uh, we know that school is already very stressful. And especially now that things are online and people are still adjusting and learning um, new ways of learning, uh, that can add a lot of added pressure and stress. And so 
uh, we would always talk to students about how can we support them academically because our belief is that a student should never um, be penalized academically because of something that someone else did to them. And so whether that means extensions or requests for, um, you know, certain accommodations around timing or space of getting things done, uh, that would be one part of the support. The other piece would be connecting students with their counseling options. Uh, we're still providing a full complement of counseling services at Fanshawe. Again, it looks a little different. It's done over the phone or uh, via Zoom. And so my job would be to review with students what counseling on campus looks like, but also what counseling in the community looks like. So not every person wants to have counseling at the college. Um, they might be interested in doing something that's separate. And we work with a lot of wonderful organizations in the community that we're able to refer students to. Uh, another piece would be the medical interventions. So depending if the um, violence is something that's happened um, within a certain time frame, there are medical options that are available to students. And that's a range of things. So that could be um, medications around uh, if someone's fearful that they've contracted an STI, um, if someone has concerns about pregnancy, um, HIV, uh, there's a medication that our program, medical program in the community, the Regional Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Treatment Program provides all these medications free to students um, and, and one being the HIV prophylaxis medication. And this medication, if taken in a certain window, can um, stop someone from having contracted HIV if they've been exposed. Um, this drug is really expensive to purchase. Um, and so I always like to mention this with, with students because sometimes we don't know what's available to us until we're in a situation. So connecting as soon as possible um, to learn about what your medical options might be is, is always best in terms of, of timelines. Um, the program also offers um, sexual assault um, evidence collection. And so sometimes this has been traditionally called the rape kit. Um, but this kit is uh, available for, you know, not just a penetrative sexual assault. Um, and so I also like to mention that because some of those ideas around what these things are sometimes are really gendered. And the program as well as my service is actually for students of any gender identification or non-conforming gender identity. And uh, so that kit is also something that's, um, there's a window and a timeline for that, um, but that's something I can discuss with students as well. So we have our counseling, um, we have our medical interventions, our academic accommodations, and then the other piece would be if students are interested in reviewing their legal and reporting options. So this can look different depending on where the violence has occurred. So some students want to access um, a report with our campus security services if it's another student that's harmed them. And we have um, processes in place through our student code of conduct um, that can hold perpetrators accountable for their actions, whether it took place on campus or not. Um, all students have a responsibility to um, to obviously treat each other with respect um, while they're on campus. So we have that as an option. And then um, depending on where the student is or where the violence took place, we also would look at if they're interested, what are their options for making a formal report to their regional police service? That can be a really um, scary process for a lot of people. And I have to acknowledge too that relationships with police are not the same for every person. And um, depending on, um, you know, 
where how we identify and where we are um, in our communities, sometimes the relationships with police um, don't feel safe. And so I always want to ensure that um, students have all the information available to them as well as the support if that's a process that they want to um, want to look into. Um, the other piece of this is that every person um, heals and um, is unique and needs different things. And so those are kind of the broad categories of support. But that being said, um, my position is really about meeting the student where they're at. And so it's doing safety planning, it's providing information on perhaps the court process, or as I mentioned, you know, what are some ways on campus that we can help someone to feel um, safer so that they can still attend if they're still attending classes, or even what does the safety look like on an online space? Because we know that's where we're spending a lot of our time now, um, not just with school, but with socializing and, and everything else um, actually in our world. So um, I can't even kind of drill down every single thing that we could do for a student because it's really what the person comes and asks, um, asks for. And sometimes that's just connecting and helping students get back home. Um, if they're here and far away from home and need to be back connected with family or community, then that's something that we would assist with as well. So um, I always encourage students to know that there is kind of no set um, framework of what support looks like, that we're, we're willing to meet you where you're at. And this process is really about what do you need and how can we help with that? And how can um, we put that power and control back in your hands so that the decisions moving forward are coming from a space of what you see, um, what you see that looking like, not what someone tells you healing supposed to look like. I did not know that that was that, that was offered in that much detail. <laughs> so that honestly makes me so happy to know that a resource like that, which I believe is very, very crucial, especially at a time where we're isolated more than any other time in human history. I'm so happy that students are going to be more aware that something like this exists and that it really is an all-encompassing, I guess, position for you to just, as you said, try and really help just wherever they need it. And so that's that's fantastic. That does sound like a lot of work though. <laughs> and I can only imagine how COVID has impacted said work. You mentioned that now you've moved into the virtual space, at least for your position. How are you enjoying, or I should say, how how is it going um, counseling over the phone and over Zoom? Because that sounds like a lot of difficult I guess I, that sounds that sounds difficult. I, I should say, <laughs> sounds like there's a lot of issues, privacy issues, and and whatnot that would kind of make it not the best option for for somebody who's looking for for help. So how has that been so far for you? Yeah, I would say um, the biggest piece is that. I'm always a stranger to students, right? So the first time that someone meets with me, they I'm a total stranger. And although I may provide all these wonderful supports and help them link to a bigger support network within our community and, and in the greater community, it, it, it doesn't mean that I'm not a stranger. And so it's really important to build trust and rapport with people. And um, and I think some of that is, you know, really based on those face-to-face -face interactions and being able to see each other and to, to really read people's body language. So I would say as we've moved into those kind of phone appointments um, and even on Zoom, it's, it's definitely not the same as sitting face-to-face -face with someone. Um, so I would say that piece, um, that's the piece where we just have to sometimes um, 
you know, provide a little bit more time maybe to build that. And, and I always acknowledge that with students now as we start to do the work in this way is that, um, it's really taken at the pace that the survivor wants to take it at. And there's no pressure um, in terms of what happens. I have no pull or feeling in terms of what someone should decide. At the end of the day, I just want students to feel safe and well. And so it's it's really directed by them. And, and if that means we take a bit more time to build some of that um, trust um, over the phone, then, then that's what we need to do. And so again, that's some, a conversation with each person. Some people are very used to doing things over the phone and actually that's their preference. And so that sometimes can be feel better for some people. Um, but for others, yeah, just just a bit more time to build that trust in, in our working relationship and, and what that looks like moving forward. I personally obviously got into social work because I like to be connected to people. And, and so do I personally miss like the human connection of seeing students and, and the positive pieces of just, I think being on campus and uh, the collective community of us coming together um, to support students. Um, yes, a lot of things kind of filter into this role, but it is really um, a community response when it comes to, you know, the academic areas being supportive of, of the students' needs, um, the counseling department, perhaps residents. Um, it's, it's about working together to really do what's best for the person, what they want to do so that um, nothing, as much as possible, things don't suffer because of what someone else did to them. So do you feel like, was the virtual option always something that was available, like being uh, counseling over the phone and Zoom, or was that specific to COVID? So it's specific to COVID. So as service has, um, so I, I would have phone conversations with students. So I guess another piece I should mention is sometimes I was supporting students on the regional campuses as well. So St. Thomas, uh, Woodstock, um, Simcoe. And so uh, I would travel to those campuses, but there was times too, uh, because they're smaller campuses where maybe students weren't spending as much time on campus as they do uh, at the Oxford campus. And so we would hold appointments over the phone. Um, and sometimes when we're doing coordination of services, there's no need for someone to come in either for a full appointment, if it's just me making some phone calls on their behalf or, or doing those pieces. So I, I would say like it existed, um, not at, at the capacity it is now where all calls um, are either through Zoom or over the phone. Um, so it's, I think, everything's changing, um, but at the same time, the service hasn't changed. So is it provided? Yes, in a, in, a, in a different model, for sure. But that doesn't mean that it's not provided in the same full extent as, as it would have been if we had been sitting in the office to chat about what the options are. Do you believe because we've been forced, as everybody has been saying, to adapt to a new normal, do you see the virtual component kind of adding to your repertoire of tools or is it something you prefer to use if absolutely necessary? I would say I would say it's an added thing and, and only because everything I do, I, I try to base it in choice. Um, and especially for, um, in terms of like what the survivor wants it to look like. And I think the piece is that we didn't look at it as the option before. It was always, oh, I'm here and I'm on campus. So then students would just, it was, it's just, I think, like you said, our normal to meet in person. And so now that we've kind of expanded that to this as an offering, as we go back, I, I do wonder about, you know, could, could that be something that we could still offer to students in that way and, and in, a, in a more fulsome way because obviously we still were before but even for our Oxford Street students it really I think 
um, as Fanshawe grows um, and we have these new campuses popping up all the time and you know more students downtown now with the new downtown building, um, sometimes that ability to connect over the phone, it, it just, especially when we're working on things in a kind of a timely matter, it does give us the ability to do that. And, and we did do it too, if transportation was an issue. Um, you know, it's always about what feels best for the person. So I, I think anytime we can make things easier for people to access the service, um, that's a positive thing. It's really not easy in our society to come forward and to speak about the violence we've experienced. Um, it's also not easy because um, there's a lot of myths and stigma still related to gender-based violence. And so any way we can break down some of those barriers and that access to care, I'm 100% for that. Speaking of myths and stigmas, I read an article on CBC highlighting how the pandemic illuminated inconsistencies within our justice system, specific to the persecution of domestic violence. A lot of the victims are expressing their pain and not being able to take back their power by facing their abusers in the physical. Based on your experience, do you believe the same inconsistencies exist for sexual violence? So when we talk about sexual violence and uh, the legal system, I always um, want to acknowledge that there's very low conviction rates um, in our in our society when it comes to the the crime of sexual assault. Um, when I do my teachings across campus and, and meet with different student groups and we talk about why may someone not report, um, we talk a lot about um, you know the intersections of who we are as people and our experiences with police and our community's experience with police, but we also talk about the decision to walk a path that um, that has a low conviction rate. And it's not to say to deter students, it's about having all of the information. And so it's all about, it's all about knowledge. And so um, a lot of the time students, you know, we're, we're, we're taught that, you know, to tell people I find, and that's part of one of the myths that you have to go to the police and that's the next step. And that's how it, it it's solidified as an assault. Um, and so the, the problem with that is that the people that are maybe telling us that that's the next step, they don't have to walk in the shoes of the survivor through that process. Um, sometimes, you know, it's it, it doesn't always even get to the point of charges. So someone may interact with police, charges may not be laid. If charges are laid, the person then um, has to go through um, quite a, a long process of time um, where they have court appearances, um, they have to keep the, you know, the pieces around the assault kind of at the forefront because it's still something that requires a lot of um, involvement over the span of time that it goes through the court process. And so I, part of breaking down some of these myths about how we should tell survivors to heal or what they need to do, I think is talking about what does our current system look like and what do we know about the data from our system. So we know that every out of every 1000 sexual assaults in Canada, only 33 are reported to police and only three of those ever lead to conviction. And uh, that knowledge, I think, is is power, and 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 for each person, it's going to be a different conversation. So I acknowledge, you know, for an example, be our international students. They, if it takes two years to see the inside of a courtroom, they may not be in Canada for that amount of time. Or if it's someone that is, you know, outside of the London community and would maybe have to travel back, like, is that feasible for them? So is it part of, is that that piece of um, accessing 
the legal route? Is that something that fits into something that's important to someone's healing? And healing looks different for everyone. And getting a legal system to say, yes, this happened, isn't always what someone needs. And so um, I always want to explore all of those options with students and be re really transparent about what that process looks like so people know what they're getting themselves into as well. It seems as though COVID has kind of brought upon an awakening, I should say. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> COVID has brought upon an awakening um, to the experiences outside of our own, a lot of experiences outside of our own. There's no way we, in isolation, we can't hide from what's happening. And as you mentioned before, we're online a lot. So there's no hiding from the very, very real problems that we may not face as individuals on our own. So with that in mind, what changes do you think will happen now that you can't ignore the problem? Or do you think that people still will ignore the problem? I, I guess my hope is always that, you know, I, I've started to think about a lot about how we provide education. So when we were on campus, we were providing a lot of education in our physical spaces. Um, now, as we move online, I think as things move online, they also become more accessible to people. Um, in some ways. And so um, for people that maybe couldn't have accessed some of the physical events or our, you know, physical offerings of education and initiatives, moving online allows for people to access that information at a time that works best for them and from a space that works best for them. Um, also, you know, in, in the privacy of their own home, if that's something that they want to do. And so I, I do think that this shift in service delivery has, like you mentioned, impacted us in every aspect of our lives from how we do our grocery shopping to how we um, connect with family and friends to how we access our services and to how we learn and so on and so on. And so um, from my perspective, I, I'd, I'd like to be hope, always hopeful that as we find new ways to provide education, um, you know, that that's also going to help shift some of the understandings around sexual violence. It's a, it is really, um, it's a community effort. And I, one thing that I love about working at Fanshawe is that we have a really strong community. So it's, you know, like you said, oh, it's like one position, but it's never one position. So if I am to go into a class and I'm to talk about sexual violence and how we can support survivors and how we can change this culture, I'm not going to change sexual violence by just doing that presentation. It's the combination of efforts that happen in all different spaces. So whether that be things like this podcast or, you know, the Ontario Bank running an article, the FSU um, hosting different online events, um, training for athletes, um, training for residence advisors, we start these conversations in all the different pockets of our community. And we, you know, it's not about the weight of that change being on one initiative or on one person's shoulders. It's really kind of a call to action for everyone. And, and we're lucky to have a lot of good champions across the college that want, want to see that change and want to ensure that survivors have the information they need. Um, because the, you know, my, my worst possible fear is always that someone maybe doesn't know that these services are available to them and may end up not be, being able to finish school because of the trauma and violence they've been subjected to. And sometimes people don't think about the long-term impacts of that. So it's not just that I came to college and I'm not able to finish what I came here to do or to have the experiences that I hope to have. 
That may then impact someone's ability to access employment, um, access funds moving forward and, and the, the plans and thoughts that they had for their life. And so um, part of our response is obviously trying to, to end sexual violence, but it's also acknowledging that we know it happens at such high rates and that's the current climate that we live in. And so how do we put that information in the hands of as many people in our community as we can so that we can do some of that wraparound support um, when people share or disclose that this has happened to them. As you'd mentioned, knowledge is power and I will forever be a believer of that. So when I came across this statistic, I was both enlightened but terrified. So maybe it's new to you, maybe it's not. But according to Statistics Canada, 71% of students at Canadian post-secondary schools witnessed or experienced unwanted sexual behavior in a post-secondary setting in 2019, either on campus or in an off-campus situation that involves students or other people associated with school. I don't know about you, Leah, but that, I am absolutely floored by that statistic. That is, I, oh, I, I'm at a loss for words as per usual. So how do you, is that surprising to you? Um, no, I, and I guess because this is, um, this is the work that I'm obviously involved in on a daily basis, um, and supporting many, many, many students. So, um, no, the reality is, is that those numbers don't surprise me. And I, and I actually also would just add that, as I mentioned before, a lot of sexual violence is not reported or disclosed. And so, sometimes when we get that snapshot of information of like this many people have experienced this, we also have to acknowledge because of that stigma and um, all of the pieces in our society that are blaming and shaming when it comes to sexual violence on survivors, unfortunately, not on the perpetrators who are the ones that are accountable. Um, it, it really um, lets us know that there's a, a huge group of people that haven't been able to, to access the supports or to say, um, you know, report this violence in, in some way or another. And so it's scary, but it's also scarier to me that, you know, we're still not at a place where um, survivors are believed. And that's a huge um, barrier to coming forward because a lot of thoughts that people have and a lot of things that they've seen in our world are messages around sexual violence being um, a joke or being made to seem as though um, it's not as big a deal as it really is. And that's part of this education piece too, is that like, it doesn't have to be a physical act to impact me and to be traumatic and to create spaces that are not safe for me. Um, our students sometimes live, study, and work um, all on our campus. And so if I'm experiencing this in you know, my environment, it could impact all three of those things. Um, so uh, unfortunately, I think be because, unfortunately, but maybe fortunately, I, I'm not surprised by the statistic, but, my, but that it's those kind of numbers that, that I think drive us as, um, as an institution to really acknowledge, like here are students saying this is what's happening. Um, they're talking about sexual violence across the spectrum. So be sexual behavior is not necessarily physical. And, um, and, and we know those, those numbers are high and, and not just for um, female identifying folks. Um, this culture makes it difficult for lots of people to come forward, including, including um, non-conforming folks and, and, and male identified folks as well. And as I mentioned before, you know, reporting processes or accessing certain supports 
also can maybe not feel safe for certain people. And, and so we have to, we have to take that step back and think about, like you said, how do we give the knowledge and, and that power back to people about you, you don't have one option. Like, and I, my favorite thing to say to students is like, even if we don't think we have an option, we'll find one because really, um, it isn't a prescribed way when it comes to figuring out what happens next. Um, and I think sometimes uh, survivors are even surprised themselves as they start to explore like, oh, I didn't think of that or I didn't even know that that was available to me because we don't have open conversations about what it means to be a survivor and how that impacts our life. Um, we still live in a culture that people wanna be detectives and wanna say, what are the facts? Like, can I say this happened or didn't happen? And when we talk about that in the classroom, I, I let students know like, that isn't your job. It's not your job to do the detective work and, and it really doesn't serve um, the person um, because they're asking for the support. And it also doesn't serve us ending this type of violence because the, the, one of the main things that we can do as a community is believe our survivors. Because if we believed our survivors, I'm sure we would see more people reaching out for the support. We would probably see more people feeling that it's, um, you know, feeling less feelings of shame or guilt about, you know, coming forward and accessing that. That sometimes people say to me, like, I don't know that I deserve this. And to me, that really speaks to how we treat survivors in our society. So um, I'm glad that Stats Can put that article out. I thought it was really timely coming out kind of at the beginning of school. And it just is another way for us to acknowledge that the numbers are high and um, higher probably than what we're even seeing in the data. And speaking of the beginning of school, based on the nature of your job, I think it's safe to assume there's a lot of importance at the very beginning of the school year since it's basically party central for a month. And with drugs and alcohol and parties, it's very, very easy to understand where that 71% comes from. With the restructuring of this school year, how has it affected your ability to connect with students? I know you had mentioned earlier that um, you're now doing phone calls, more Zoom calls, you, you can't really be in the office, but in terms of that really crucial first month where you're truly trying to get resources out there, get people familiarized with what you do, what the counseling service do in general, especially during that frosh week, frosh month, realistically. So how has it been to connect with students on that level? Um, yeah, back to school has looked a heck of a lot different than it has in the past. Um, that's an and, understatement. <laughs> yeah, that's the understatement of the century, of 2020. Um, but it's, um, I, my connection with students, so again, it was just like reimagining how we get the information to students. So, um, we still held a sexual awareness week, but we did it online. And so the programming and the information was provided online, um, and it, it just looked different. It wasn't that the information wasn't similar to what we would have been providing in a physical space. It just looked different. And so um, I'm still, you know, seeing students. I'm, I'm busy. Um, at the beginning of school, it's always a busy time, but that hasn't changed just because we're in COVID. And I, um, I appreciate, you know, you acknowledging too, that there, there is, um, you know, things are still happening just because we have rules and regulations and um, we're asked to do certain things um, by public health, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that that's how life is looking for everyone. And so, um, you know, things still occur and happen. And um, there's no shame also if, 
if you've, you know, maybe done something outside of the public guidelines and then are seeking support, like it, that's, it's not about holding someone accountable for that. It's about um, supporting them with what happened to them, which wasn't okay. Um, I think that would be a barrier now that, now that you mention it, if somebody were to speak out, do you think that's going to prevent them from doing that? If there was a, I guess, a se severe consequence to not adhering to the rules, do you think that's going to affect people's ability to want to talk to you about something that may have happened to them or something that they witnessed at a party that we all know they should not be going to, maskless? <laughs> yeah, I, I think anytime where we could be, you know, penalized for something, um, that could be a barrier. Um, and so my service is confidential, um, and, and, and that really just means that I don't have to share or report anyone. That's not my responsibility. Um, my responsibility is to support the student and with what happened to them. And so um, I, I do think it's important to note that, yeah, that could be something that could come up for students and they could wonder about because we know people are still gathering. Um, and, and, and the focus of the support would be around the crime that was committed around sexual violence. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I, that's why I mentioned that. I think, um, again, we wouldn't want that to be a barrier to someone reaching out for support and, um, and, and to really, again, I can't obviously speak to each individual situation. We'd have to kind of figure that out with the student and what that would look like in terms of if they wanted to take certain pathways forward and what they would maybe want people to know or not know. Um, but that's something we can always just discuss in, in a confidential space. Well, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate <laughs> and even more so because of COVID. But I thank you so much for your job, Leah, because honestly, resources like this are beyond more, are beyond important because at this point, on top of a pandemic, I can't imagine how it would feel to experience or re-experience any sexual violence. So I'm, I'm very appreciative that you were able to be as comprehensive as you were with, with uh, the resources that you and the school um, provide. So I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, is there anything lastly that you wanted to add? Well, I would just thank you too, Ilhan, because I think it's, this is the kind of things, like I said, that we kind of carry this, this weight together as a community to share the information. So to make this a priority of the podcast, I'm really appreciative of that as well. Um, we all access and get information through different ways in different spaces. And so I think any opportunity that there is to talk about what we do, it, it's really important to get that information to students. So I appreciate that. And, and I, I guess I would just leave it with, um, if someone has experienced something, whether it happened at Fanshawe or not, and the, the perpetrator doesn't have to also be a Fanshawe student, it could be anyone, um, we're happy to connect around what those supports would look like. So it's, it's just as simple as um, sending me an email and then us kind of figuring out what does that look like moving forward. Um, but yeah, so thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you again, as I had mentioned, and thank you all so, so much for listening. Be sure to remember to follow the Interrobang on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find the podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Until next time, everyone. <laughs>